0: Thanks for tuning in to episode 25 of Thank You, Now What?, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. The show is produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, we spoke with my buddy, Brad Thomas. Brad is a retired U.S. Army Ranger and veteran of Operation Gothic Serpent in Somalia in 1993, as well as Iraq and Afghanistan in the global war on terror. He stayed connected to the special operations community by reliably outfitting today's warfighters with the best equipment to do their jobs. In 2017, Brad teamed up with some other special operators to form the rock band, Silence and Light, a union of his professional military experience and lifelong love of music.
1: So I remember hearing like Nirvana for the first time, low crawling down the barracks hallway, (laughs) you know, (laughs) buffing the hallway, you know, at two in the morning or whatever it might be that's, that's kind of like the first time I remember that. And when I think back to those times and when I go to Fort Benning, there's this overwhelming feeling and I haven't been able to pinpoint it with a word. It's not uneasiness, but it reminds me of the time of my life when like, I didn't know what tomorrow brings.
0: We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. I mean, the show focuses on, like, transition, but obviously we talk about other stuff. Basically, like, before and after. We don't try to do just, like, a chronological biography of the person. But we do, like, you know, I think we at least try to hit on transition and spend, you know, just as much time talking about after the military as, as in the military, you know. Try to avoid, like, the uh, war stories all the time if something's, yeah. like, interesting, like, we... Or if you just want to, like, get off it, then, you know, just be like, fuck that.
1: <laughs> then, yeah.
0: there's another
1: guy... No shit, there I was. <laughs> yeah. So, so exciting, <laughs> especially when it's, like, every war story is kind of the same, you know? To some degree. I mean, yeah, they're the ones that stand out, but... Yeah.
0: They actually have a podcast at West Point. We'll get going after this, but... We have a podcast at West Point where people just come on and tell war stories so that the cadets can hear what combat's like. The intro is basically like, "No shit, there I was," and like oh, a frag came right <laughs> over the wall, and it's like they're feeding this stuff to the West Pointers so they understand what combat is like.
1: Probably a good thing, I guess, if yeah. it can help. I think there are people that it's it's a huge curiosity, you know, oh, yeah. and so they it's the thing that you know is kind of the ultimate test, and so. They want to know what it's like and how you felt. Uh, I did this podcast. I know I did this. uh, There's a new not social media platform, but it's kind of like a podcasting thing called Clubhouse. Yeah, I've heard of that. And it's kind of weird until you actually see it and do it. And then you're like, oh, okay, I get it. You can see the people on your phone. It's all audio, no video. And you can see the people on your phone that are listening. And then they're like the moderators and I was the guest. So I'm talking and they would invite people like you can raise your hand and then they invite you to come up to the stage, which now you're up on this part of the screen and you can see, okay, that question is from Miranda, you know, whatever her screen name is. Yeah. And then they ask their question. So it's not like people just talking over top of each other. And it, it was, it was pretty interesting. So anyway, this dude's like, so you were in Black Hawk Down. Yeah uh yeah what did what was that like what did it feel like like hmm.
0: i want you to write me a five-page paper on the civil war yeah exactly so it was
1: like i do want you to just encapsulate the whole thing yeah how do i how do i <laughs> tackle that big of a question like maybe something a little more specific like when it initially started how did you feel yeah. or you know something like that but
0: there was this uh, this like I don't know why I know this, but from listening to the radio, there's this like New England Patriots beat reporter who would always ask Belichick something. And he, uh, but everyone else would formulate their questions, and Belichick would just like tear them apart. Um, and this guy would just show up to these press conferences and they'd be, and he'd be like, um, you know, Bill, uh, special teams played good today. You just want to talk about that. And that was it. But then he would go. And he was like, "All right, if you want like me to just own the narrative, I can waste time all day talking yeah, yeah, yeah. about special teams." Yeah. So that's some people like, some people like a vague question. Yeah. Yeah. Are we allowed to say where we're recording from? Secret,
1: yeah, that's secret, totally fine. Secret location. Yeah, it's totally oh, fine. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. If if people listen and they dig that deep, I mean that's I generally with all the social media stuff I steer clear. Yeah. So I. I try and keep those things separate but i'm kind of happy with something like this if that's something that you guys want to talk about i'm happy to talk about that too oh yeah no no matter to me cool this is our
0: first everyone being together podcast like i think we've done we've done at least four or five other ones we've done five other ones in person but it was just me with like ben dialing in on the phone because someone at his kid's daycare has COVID, like every other week, so he he spends half the time in, like hard <laughs> lockdown. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, <That's rough. laughs> yeah, no, it was like a awesome you know place to come and do it. That's cool. So we started out talking about like the clubhouse thing, but you've been doing a lot of media lately. Is that just lately?
1: Uh, no, I mean I started it when the whole when the whole band thing stood up, or when I stood up the whole band thing. Yeah that's kind of when it started. And I, I wasn't really like I, I had an Instagram page prior to that, but it was like 60 likes on a picture, you know, it was just kind of friends and inner circle people. Yeah. And as soon as I announced like, Hey, this is what I'm doing. It just started to grow. Okay. And then, you know, would get hit up by podcast people because I posted a few photos trying to be more public about, who i was and the things that i had done only from the perspective that i wanted people to know that i'm legit it wasn't you know like look at me i used to serve in this unit or anything like that it was more like and part of the band uh mission statement if you will is to kind of be an example for people to say hey i've lived the dark times i've lived through stuff that's been incredibly painful, dealt with the after effects. And if I can figure out a healthy and creative and positive way to get some of this stuff off my chest and do something and give back to the community, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Yeah. That's the only reason I really started posting any military photos. And then from that, you know, every airsoft kid and everybody else just started jumping on board and this guy reposted it and he's got 102,000 followers. And then, you know, it just grows. Yeah. So that's, that's really the only perspective. I don't really, I don't enjoy sitting around talking about, you know, what I did 15 years ago or 20 years ago or 25 years ago or whatever it might be. That's not my passion right now today. It's a part of who I am, Mm -hmm. but you know, I'm I'm more excited about the things I'm doing right now than sitting around telling stories about, you know, back when I did this or that. Yeah. I think when we're in, we
0: are like, I'm never going to talk about this at all. And then when you're like afterwards, you're OK, well, it's it's all right to like share experiences with people without it turning into war story. No shit there I was. But like. I think that's part of the reason that we started this show is like, we need to talk about transition stress. Um, we need to talk about not even stress, but just like transition as, as a thing that we all go through and it doesn't have to be like and depressing all the time. It can be like just informative. Like what are these other people like me doing at, at this transitionary point in their life? Right. So, you know, it becomes easier to, to just have types of conversations. I think the farther, at least from my personal perspective, like the farther I am removed from leaving active duty. Right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. The day you walk
1: out, you're still kind of like all zipped up. (laughs) Yeah. uh, It takes, it takes. So what I've kind of noticed is that there's a, there's this cycle and you first separate and you're excited because now I don't have to do what the man tells me to do when the man tells me to do it. Yeah. And if I want to experiment with smoking weed or if I want to do whatever, (laughs) Uh, you know, I can do those kinds of things and nobody's holding my hand and I'm not going to get an Article 15 or, yeah. you know, and to some degree, serving in special operations is challenging because, as you know, you know, to just maintain your status there, it's, you have to prove yourself every day. So all of a sudden that guard comes down and, You know, who am I now, now that I don't have to do that? How do I still find importance? You know, how do I find purpose that what I'm doing is important as what I did, you know, a year ago or 20 years ago or whatever it might be? And so there's this high that comes from now I'm, I'm out and I can do whatever I want to 18 months, 18 to 24 months is when the guy realizes that it's not all cracked up you know not all that it's cracked up to be yeah and man the the brotherhood that i felt isn't the same on the outside and what i'm doing isn't as important as what i was doing then and all that stuff starts to pile on and to me that's that's kind of like the start of transition Hmm. you can't really understand the transition piece until you go through it i don't i don't believe on our last recording or the episode
0: we posted this morning, maybe it'll be two before this one. We bring up this recurring thing that's like uh, identity, community, and purpose, right? Like wholesale forfeiture of all three the day you step out. Not to make it sound like that drastic, but it can be or can feel like that at times. Sure. And our guest, Noah, a personal friend of mine, asked, uh, how'd you come up with that? And I was like, I didn't come up with it. Everyone on the show has come up with it. Like we've done, you know, two dozen episodes now. And it's like, all I have to do is listen to other people to learn about what transition's like. Like I'm, I'm never just going to come up with the answers.
1: You know, I don't even think a lot of people understand like the right questions to ask. For example, and I think I talked to you about this when you came up to New York City. And it took forever for me to figure out how to go to the fucking doctor tricare assigned me a doctor that was in manhattan it cost me 47 dollars to park my car for an hour to go see the doctor um this doctor had no history of who i am what i've done other than my now pile of medical records that i have from the military and i went in because i was having chest pains and he accused me of using cocaine and uh I'm like, dude, I, I probably, I still have an active TS clearance. Like, you know, that's, that's not something that I've engaged in. Like, I have a heart problem. I don't know what it is. I run, I'm in shape, you know. Yeah. I've been here for three weeks and I'm having a problem. It turned me off so much that, you know, I never went back to the doctor. Yeah. And, you know, the first thing he wanted me to do with chest pains was take off all my clothes and stick his finger in my ass To do whatever. I have no idea where that came from. Was this Dr. Vinny Boombox? (laughs) He was a gigantic Russian dude. Barely spoke English. And he was like, I treat you like human. (laughs) I treat you like human. And I'm like, dude, you're not taking my, I'm not taking my clothes off and you're not doing that. No. And uh, anyway, it caused this whole rift, you know, but to me that was, so who do I call to fix the problem? Mm. I don't have a TRICARE number. When I left, and I, I don't, I don't want to go back and talk about, okay, I transitioned 11 years ago. So I'm sure things are much different now mm-hmm. um, than they were then. I didn't have, and when I left, it was literally, I filled out forms with an email that I knew I was going to have and an address at where I thought I was going to be living. I never ended up living at that address. So somebody at 955 Metropolitan Avenue is probably getting all my VA mail and things like that. There was no set up your online account or any of that stuff. There was no, none of that. Yeah. So who do I call? Do I call back to Fort Bragg to the med shed and ask, you know, who do I call at TRICARE or can you get me a number is, are they my fallback? You know, how do I solve this problem? And In some cases, and I've said this before on a number of podcasts, one one of the things that I tell guys that are still in is, in some cases, you're at a disadvantage because everything is self-contained. And what I mean by that is, you know, regular Army 82nd guy knows where finance is on post. He knows who to call. He knows the office that takes care of transportation issues like with a PCS move, or he knows uh, the medical liaison, whatever it might be, like those people are forced to use the military system. And then when you leave special operations, I don't care what unit it is, you know, generally all that stuff is taken care of at the unit. So you're, you're to some degree at a disadvantage with your knowledge of how the system works, you know? Yeah. The Army or the military is like a big parent, you know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) it is. It's like, I brought this up on our very first episode, and people made fun of me afterwards. Like, I got a couple texts that were like, you really didn't know how to find a dentist? Like, no, I just go to the dentist. Yeah. Right? Like, it's there. Whatever smoke bomb hill dental clinic <laughs> show up what's your social security number Our we're gonna we're gonna give you whatever person this is to fuck around in your mouth for a while until you know you're not on a dental profile all right cool yeah so we touched on the band a little bit so we, maybe we dive in there sure so what came first the the song name or the band
1: name definitely the band name it was just kind of a I don't think it it was ever a placeholder we we didn't really have any band name and the kind of the way the whole thing started was me asking uh, a former ranger buddy of mine jason everman who was in both uh nirvana and soundgarden prior to joining the military in 94 yeah and uh he and i had connected years and years and years ago and we're really close and Anyway, I've been kind of kicking around ideas of how to how can I give back to the community? I don't I don't want to stand up a foundation. I feel like there are enough good charitable things going on already that I didn't want to create another thing to then have to try and get money to support or something like that. So the idea was we'll write music, we'll release music and we'll take the royalties of the you know music proceeds sales and we'll contribute those to charitable organizations that we believe in. Yeah. That was kind of the start point. So from there then it then it just started to grow. The name definitely wasn't you know in the first even probably 6 months. You know, it wasn't even a conversation like back in high school when you cooked up that cool band name and you drew it on your notebook yeah. and you know <laughs> Wrote right. it on your jeans and stuff like that. I mean, we got yeah. an awesome band name. Now we have to learn how to play instruments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like uh, that movie, Detroit Rock City was awesome for that because yeah. it was they were, I forget what the n- the name that they cooked up, but he had it written on his notebook and everything else, and they totally sucked and couldn't play. But <laughs> yeah, so Silence and Light, the uh, the name came from me and the bass player were talking, and he sent me a photo of. A valley in Afghanistan, and it was like in the morning, so the sun was just coming up, and it was kind of a pretty photo. I'm not a fan of the desert, whether it's overseas or in the United States. I'm I'm a lush, tropical beach, sandy, you know that that's my love. Uh, but anyway, it was kind of a, a a pretty picture, and he was telling me the story about like what had happened the night before, and. You know what happened kind of after the sun came up and things like that and and he said when i look at this picture it reminds me of this poem called between the silence and the light and so we we kind of were kicking it well we can't use that if it's you know copywritten or we can't you know whatever so something about silence and light just kind of stuck and people will ask, what does it mean? Or, you know, what does it mean to me? And I guess I, I throw it back at them and say, really, it can mean whatever you want it to mean. And one of the reasons I thought it was a cool name was because it inspires some sort of thought. You know, it's not, it's not a bomb dropper or, you know, mm. you know it's not something like God that. It's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not so in your face. Anyway, to me, it's it kind of speaks to the solitude and loneliness, and also hope that I think you feel when you're deployed. That's, to me, that's what it means. Hmm. It it probably means something else to the drummer, you know, or yeah. the singer. Yeah. So, how'd you hook up with your bandmates? Uh, so again, like it started with this idea. I approached Jason with it. He was in town uh, here in the city. He'd flown in from Seattle, and he was living at the time. He was living between here in Park Slope and in Seattle. So he was coming here to stay for a while. And we were going to see Mastodon over at Hammerstein Ballroom. And uh, so we linked up before the show, and we were boozing. And, you know, I just flat out kind of asked him the day before is when I had the idea and and said, you know, hey, I want to put this musical project together. I know you haven't been in music for a long time. And when you left, you know, it wasn't something that you were enjoying doing. And, and it caused a lot of drama for you. But it, I would love to do something like this with you. And I can't think of anybody better to do it with. And he said, you know, absolutely, I would love to do that. So that's kind of where it started. And then I probably the next day switched over social media to to start reflecting, you know, hey, here's who I am, here's what I'm doing. And it kind of grew organically. So the next guy to jump on board was the bass player, Tyson, who was a, uh, not retired. I think he spent 12 years in the Marine Corps, um, a bunch of those years in MARSOC as an officer. Hmm. And he hit me up and said, you know, I i 'm not hundred percent on what you got going on, but I want to be a part of it and I think he was dealing with some stuff at the time, and it was just it was a uh, something that he could claim and you know be a part of and have some sort of purpose and feel like he was giving back and things like that so that 's kind of how it started to grow, and same thing with the drummer and same thing with the singer. It just yeah. kind of came to be when was this I think Jason and I saw the uh, Mastodon show in May of two thousand eighteen. And we met kind of all together. It took until probably January of 2019 before we were, oh, no, that was 2017. Uh, so 2018 in January was when we actually all met in person hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and then started rehearsing and putting stuff together. That's, that's kind of how it started are you guys like uh now in the same spot or you gotta like travel to collaborate and record and do gigs and stuff like that so that that's one of the things that technology has done is yeah right i can throw something on my iphone and send it to the dudes and if they like it then that's kind of what i do is so i'll I'll write i write all the music and i'll start with an idea or a concept or riff or whatever it might be and then i'll I'll send it to Tyson is kind of the first line supervisor. And if he digs it because we've got a diverse enough background in music that if he likes it, then there's probably something to it. And then I'll take it a little bit further and add more parts and things like that. So by the time we do get together to rehearse, the song is pretty much, you know, kind of together. And then it's a matter of figuring out transitions from part to part and how... How can we make this part step up, you know, and be sound bigger or or whatever it might be? So, technology has been our friend, you know, in that regard. I'm a total like dumbass open mouth
0: consumer of uh, of music. <laughs> I've never, I have no musical talents. I have no idea how to like put it together, create it. You're talking about creating the music and the lyrics, or one or the other. How does it even come together?
1: It'll start, and it's weird because I tap into something. Uh, The last album, you know, I kind of tapped into... Really, it was kind of telling our story. You know, it was kind of like dealing with some things that maybe didn't get dealt with from the past. Mm -hmm. And one of the tunes, as an example, was really kind of a song that was like a goodbye to all the people that I never got a chance to say goodbye to. And you know the deal. It's like if you're deployed, a lot of times... If a teammate's killed or a troop mate's killed, you don't even get to attend the funeral or the memorial service or things like that. And they generally will put another one together after you get home. And I don't know. It's just so like your homies with this person. You grill together. Your families hang out. You know, you're super close or, or maybe not so much. But yeah, it, there's just no goodbye. You know, there's no, hey, man. This is how I feel about you or we're good friends or whatever it might be. So one of the tunes kind of started as that. And I think the whole vibe of that album is kind of that. And it was, it's not a concept album, but there was a series of songs, the last three of which were kind of like meant to be listened to in a row. And uh, it's Prelude is the first song that's kind of like the calm before the storm. And then there's War, which is a very, you know, pretty fast-paced, almost metal song. And then it finishes with the tune Silence and Light. And that one kind of talks a little bit about, like, the aftermath of all that and dealing with it. And really, that's a song that's about contemplation. So in a long, roundabout way, to answer your question, (laughs) it's... uh, I kind of tap into something, and it's like a vibe, and... I don't know where it comes from. It's not like I'm trying to sound like something or trying to play a song like and I'll say, I want to do a song that's like aggressive and upbeat and fast. And then I'll just kind of fiddle around on the guitar until I find something. Yeah. And some days I'll find two or three things, and some days I won't find anything. You know, so I just kinda of fiddle around with it until I get there. I used to play guitar and I played everybody else's music, you know. It was when i picked it up i wouldn't it's not like i tried to write anything i would just i could play this song or let yeah. me play van halen or let me play acdc or whatever it might be yeah. and uh, this is very much like i don't i don't really play anybody else's music right now i just pick it up and create with it and so that's that's kind of cool so the first album was very much like that dark of deployment you know of my last i don't know maybe 20 years in the military, it was kind of like putting a closure on that and with, I think, some of the negative shit, you know, some of the bad stuff. And this album, I totally tapped into something else. It's interesting because we actually wrote a whole album and we're kind of doing some of the final rehearsals and I came in with a new song and that's like, I always continue to improve, right? So if like not every song can be the best song, If I find something better, I want to replace the worst song with a better song, right? So we kind of do that the whole time we're we're writing until we get to a point where we're going to record. So I came in with this new song, and everybody's like, whoa, I really dig this, except that song was really different than any of the other stuff that we had written to date. And so we came to this fork in the road of... Do we continue to write the same album over and over again, or do we, you know, go in a new direction and kind of explore a little bit? And so, I just continue to write stuff more like that. Hmm. Feel like I'm rambling. So that's fine. Here,
0: <laughs> the episode based on you, not me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always thought that was kind of fucked up because I would go to memorial services for buddies I knew but wasn't on the same team as, and was like his team's like still over there and they're they're not here and but it's like his family's stateside so yeah you have to do it there's no best way to do it but I always remember that aspect of it either it was like you weren't going back to do it with someone from your own team but also when it was someone from a different team it's like the rest of this guy's crew is not
1: here right now yeah Yeah. I had a, a buddy that was killed in Mogadishu and his wife, when she found out, she was like, oh, I want you know, so-and-so to be the person that escorts the body and et cetera, et cetera. And I guess they were trying to figure out somebody to assign to that. Yeah. And that was also way back, like pre-war, there wasn't any, you know, things weren't figured out quite the way that they're figured out after 20 years of war. Yeah. And uh, anyway, she's the person that she selected had been killed, too. And when she heard that, it was like, man, totally floored her because I don't think she realized uh, the scope of what had happened. And at that time, too, again, it was like pre-war. There, were, there was no it's not like people knew what they were going to get into. Oh, we're going to you know, go over here and stop the Stop the Somali pirates from raiding all the aid coming in through the U.N., you know, to try and help them you know i don't think anybody knew what was coming yeah if you want to go to somalia we can spend a little time there. i'd rather not go to somalia because it was a fucking (laughs) shithole for
0: discussion yeah no no no. i'm totally cool with that Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah anything about that okay sure so just like the headliner right what did they get right and wrong in
1: the movie I know that's about as broad based as the question no, that the no, dude no. asked you on clubhouse no no, no I think that's no. a, it's a good question because for most people that's their frame of reference right
0: dude, I will tell you so I joined the army in o three when I graduated high school. I watched Black Hawk down probably twenty times before joining the army <laughs> and zero times
1: after yeah yeah, yeah. and i think but I think that's how it goes yeah yeah, I saw um they did a special premiere for the unit so. I got to meet Ridley Scott and uh, Mark Bowden, the writer, and yeah. Jerry Bruckheimer. And they had one of the actors, William Fickner. They had him there, too, at some little movie theater in Fayetteville. Yeah. And, you know, there were like 20 or so of us and, you know, families and stuff like that. And we went, went and watched the movie. And I thought that they did a pretty good job with it in terms of, Probably that the accuracy of the timeline, like who was where, when was this. Most people don't understand that Hollywood has to condense whatever the story into just a handful of characters. Because if you think about any normal movie, it's like one main, you know, leading yeah. character. And now you like have a battle. Mark in the
0: uh, in the marathon bombing movie. He's everyone. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's, the, you know, you kind of have to do that. And, and otherwise, you can't have 110 characters that all lived something different. So a lot of those stories, you know, were a, a conglomeration of different actual true stories that just got put onto, you know, one character. Yeah. Uh, they picked one main ranger character, as an example, uh, Matt Eversman. And... He was on uh, Larry King soon after we got back. And I think that's probably how... I think the Ranger Regiment selected him as a guy that could be kind of a spokesman and openly talk about it. So anyway, he became the main Ranger character. And I think that's the only thing that, that kind of didn't show every aspect of the battle, you know, which is totally fine. I think that there were some things that were left out, like the, a lot of the stuff that I did... That's really where all the casualties were happening, was, you know, driving around all over the city looking for the crash site, and doing it multiple times. Like that's literally where 90 percent of the casualties were coming from. So that wasn't really depicted. Some of it was depicted like, "Turn now," you know, and we'd drive past and turn at the wrong spot and get ambushed and things like that. But there was no sustained I think it was at that part of the battle in the movie they were flashing from. Here are these guys that were a part of the unit guys. And here are these guys and different, you know, leaders and stuff like that. So anyway, I think it was, it was pretty good. I don't think it was as violent. Like, I don't think you can even come close to as violent as it was. Comparing that gunfight to other ones that I've been in other places, you know, it's not even close. Not even anywhere close.
0: Were you using, like, paper maps? You didn't have the... Uh, did you have Falcon View
1: yet, which is also a piece of shit? <laughs> we didn't have... Um, I think, you know, one person in the vehicle may have had a map, like maybe the, the person in charge of the vehicle. I don't think that even that, you know, probably knew where they were going or, you know, there was no, like, send a grid kind of stuff happening. I think most people take for granted that, like, oh, nowadays everybody has radios. Everybody has a radio. Yeah. and. Not everybody had a radio then. So how do you put out information in the middle of an incredibly violent gunfight where you can't be in the street because that's where all the action's happening, but that's where you have to be to do your job. And we can't have this big leader's huddle, you know, and then <laughs> yeah. go, go tell all the men what the new plan is or whatever else. So in my mind, it was just a great big, like, communications Nut roll where yeah. nobody really knew what was going on. Maybe the guys at the upper level that had radio connectivity understood, like, oh, we're doing this now, or, oh, we're doing that, you know. Nobody at the lower level had any clue. What was it like when, you know, nowadays, or maybe not
0: even nowadays anymore, but, like, during the early 2000s, early teens, most people had combat experience. When you looked at your enlisted leaders most people had been there done that can teach you a thing or two at that point we had very short sporadic conflicts and if you missed it you missed it yeah so like who do you look up to as like a young what were you like an e4 or
1: something yeah it was an e4 yeah at the time um yeah i mean your squad leader in the ranger battalion you know your squad leader or team leader is your that's your lifeline, you know, that's where you're getting your information. That's your first guy up the chain and things like that. And, uh, we were all kind of like peers at that point. So my, my squad leader wasn't even on my vehicle. My buddy was the TC of the vehicle that I was on and I was kind of a freelance saw gunner and I only carried a saw gun because it, it had more bullets and it could shoot faster and I could carry ammo for it and, uh, in the vehicle. I didn't have to carry it on my person necessarily, but I felt like it was just a more violent weapon. So I elected to carry that. But yeah, in terms of, in terms of all that, when I first got to the Rangers, it was right after Panama. So even the privates and other, you know, PFCs that hadn't been to Ranger school had, uh, CIBs and combat scrolls and jump stars and things like that. And so, In my mind, those guys were all heroes, but by 93, you know, if you figure back then, because there wasn't war, a lot of people were joining the service to pay for college. So most of the people that were in the Rangers with me got out right after they did their four years and they were either peers of mine and we all kind of joined about the same time or uh, they came in a little bit later or whatever. Most of the people before had moved onwards and upwards, you know, so my squad leader and team leader from when I first got to the Ranger Battalion had all gone to, you know, be rip cadre and then had gone on to other units or wherever they might have or got out of the military. So, so what's it like having combat experience when the rest of the
0: army largely doesn't?
1: It was interesting. So so there were there were Panama guys when I came in and also I was in basic I was in AIT when desert storm kicked off and uh you know so there was the only other unit on fort benning there were most people don't know this because fort benning was such a huge military installation in the 90s early 90s and probably until recently the only active unit on fort benning was the ranger battalion and at that time there was another unit which ended up becoming a part of Third ID, which was like an, an armored group. A mechanized infantry. Yeah, unit. yeah, and and that was it. So everything else on Fort Benning was like a military school. Like you had airborne school, you had Ranger school, you had Pathfinder, Jumpmaster, all those schools. But those people were only there for three weeks. They weren't there as like spent a career there or whatever. So. Anyway, when I got to the Rangers, there were Panama guys and then there was the unit that was kind of across the street, which was, we called it the $1.97 guess it was the 197 <laughs> infantry brigade, but it, we called it the $1.97 and uh, those dudes were all walking around with CIBs and stuff like that. So we would be at the mall on the weekend or whatever and people were thanking the, the $1.97 guys because they had been over to Saudi and all that stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was a pretty funny time, but yeah, like after that, uh, once I went beyond my first enlistment, definitely that, that whole group of people thinned out real quick. So by the time I got to be an E six and went to B and things like that, aside from other dudes in the Ranger battalion that had been to Mogadishu, there weren't really anybody, you know, nobody was left. So kind of pairing two questions
0: together, what made you decide to go past the first go at it and stay the course and eventually become a career guy? And then how did you actually find yourself in the army?
1: Man, both of them a little bit long winded. So I'll try and readers digest them. <laughs> okay. uh, so I play, I played music prior to coming in the military and similar to, you know, to Jason just kind of had like an unfulfilled experience with it. And, really at the end, it kind of, it just broke my heart. And this thing that I had struggled years to kind of put together and build and get the right people involved with. And it was the music that I like to play and all that stuff. And then, you know, pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. And it got to a point where it just fell apart. And I was at a you know crossroads of, okay, I'm 21. Do I start that whole process again and take another three years to build something and find the right singer after trying four singers and dealing with attitude problems and all that kind of crap. Do I do all that again or do I maybe try something different? And three things happened kind of simultaneously. The music and the band that I was in kind of all fell apart The invasion of Panama happened, and I saw kind of parts of that on TV in December of 89, and a buddy of mine who had joined the Air Force, he was an EOD guy. He came home for for leave. And so all that stuff kind of happened at the same time, and he told me this story about at the end of his AIT, there was a group of uh, cadre that came to visit his class, and they were recruiting for a special unit in the air force that like jumped in behind enemy lines and rescued down pilots. And that sounded really, when he told me about that, it kind of like, man, that sounds kind of exciting. So within a few weeks, I went and talked to the recruiter, the air force recruiter, because I wanted to try that. And the air force guy basically gave me a runaround, and I just wanted to be guaranteed that I could try. Yeah. Not not that I would make it, right? I understood that it's a process and maybe you make it, maybe you don't. But who was to say, and I was completely naive on the military, like had no idea, you know, nobody in my family had been in the military or anything like that. But who's to say that, like, I'm not in the middle of basic training and they go, oh, hey, we need a cook in Washington State and they send me to Washington State and I'm a cook? You know, there was no guarantee. Like, I just want a guarantee to try. So I was leaving the Air Force recruiter one day, and the Army guy uh, pulled me into his office, and he said, "Hey, man, what are you what are you doing?" And I said, "The Air Force guys giving me a runaround." And he goes, "What do you want to do?" And I dropped the D bomb, and he goes, "Well, you can't do that. You got to do something first, like Special Forces." And I said, "Okay, I'll do that." And he goes, "Well, you can't do that either. You got to be something before that, like a <laughs> Ranger." And, like, and what I the said, fuck, man? How many steps are there? And I said, okay, I'll do that. So to answer your question about how did I decide to go past my first enlistment was I came in with the intent of going to an Army Special Mission Unit. That was kind of my goal. Hmm. And once I got to the Rangers, I recognized, like, I, I didn't know. I didn't know how long the process was. There was no, you know, there was no manual on that. There was no... Information or anything like that. The internet <laughs> didn't exist. There <laughs> wasn't a place where you could read about it or anything. It was only at Steve Jobs' house at that point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, or at MIT or something like that. But yeah. it was on a um, list
0: serve, which I still don't know
1: what that is. Yeah. So anyway, you know, I, I was a complete knucklehead in terms of information or what I knew, and uh, so when I got to the Rangers, I just. Recognized that I needed to be the best ranger. You know, I needed to be, you know, my goal is to get to ranger school and become a team leader. Yeah. And then, okay. Once I finished that, uh, you know, about that point is when Mogadishu happened. And now I got to work around unit guys and I got yeah. to see that firsthand. I also went to ranger school with, uh, Norm Hooten and Brad Holling, uh, both, both of which were recognized in the movie black Hawk down, but yeah, you know, are very public people now. So um, anyway, I, I knew those guys and, you know, could talk to them and things like that when we were deployed over there. And that was kind of the next step. So, you know, i become a team leader and then Mogadishu happens and so many people in my platoon were wiped out that I was actually supposed to be in uh, the regimental recon detachment selection course in October of 93, I'd already told my chain of command that I was leaving and going there. So they had kind of pulled me off of like my team leader job. And so anyway, I got back and so many dudes in my platoon had either been killed or wounded. Um, I felt like a shit bag if I had just left. So I told them that I would give them like another year and a half or so. And I did. And then I became a squad leader and then went to Ranger Recon Detachment. So that was kind of my stepping stone to the next to the next place. But that was kind of how it came to be, how I joined the military. And then also, you know, kind of the, the process once I got there. Do you
0: think that infantry and special operations in the Army offers you a pretty linear path? Not that it's easy whatsoever, but it's kind of linear, I think, in that every point in the tree only branches to like a couple other things
1: if you keep going down that line. Am I off base there? No, I, I think it's interesting because not everybody can be the sergeant major of the unit, you know, or the sergeant major of the Rangers or whatever it might be. And, you know, that's one of those things that as you stay in, the peer group begins to get smaller and smaller. And at some point, you know, it's only a handful of people that are competing for those spots. I, I don't know. There were, there were aspects of the military that I loved One of them was pay, and I don't mean in the amount, the amount of pay, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) it was that you know what everybody gets paid. Like there's no, what's my value, right? Mm. It's I'm in E4 with four years, or I'm in E6 with uh, six years. Yeah. This is how much I get paid. This is how much he gets paid. This is how much. Our platoon sergeant gets paid. like You knew that. Yeah. And the year after you leave the Army, you get paid more than the chief of staff. <laughs> exactly. If you play your cards right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, definitely so. But that, that's just one of those things that I, I felt like you knew your value. Like that money and value don't equal the same thing in the military. It's just here's what you get paid right now because that's what rank you are. And it's completely different on the outside world.
0: I think that it it removes a lot of the pretense because of the standardization. There's no worrying about what other people make or or that's not factored into their value. Their value is how their unit perceives their contribution uh, and and their their own personal brand. You know, behavioral economics. It's like. If I give you $100, you're happy. If you find out that I gave everyone else $200, you're pissed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So it's one of those it's one of those good, I guess, equalizers in the military, but also limited upside. It's like if we were going to pay people their market value for the kind of shit that they do, especially in our top-tiered special operations, it's like for, work for peanuts.
1: What's your thought on... So I, I like comparing... You know, tier one military to the NFL. And it's, I feel like a lot of people do. I feel like it's a good analogy only because you you can't just go into the NFL. You're a foot, you know, you're a high school player. If you're good enough at that, maybe you're playing college ball. If you're good enough at that, maybe you get into the NFL. But even at the NFL level, Ninety-five percent of the players you don't even know their names. Like, there's one or two stars on a team. Stands for not for long as well. Average NFL careers three years, just under three years. Yep. Yeah. But that's you know that's one of those things. So so what is your thought on this? Is what I was going to ask, and now I'm trying to fish around for it. The same argument has been made for teachers, and that is, if you pay a teacher 150 G's a year. Everybody will want to be a teacher, and are you really getting the person that really wants to be a teacher yeah. if you paid everybody their value like I think teacher is probably one of the most important jobs, yeah aside from firemen or policemen or you know things like that in terms of like okay, this is our bare survival and and probably people that raise children are, are you know doing a very important job too, but what's your thought on the military not being something that is paid well because you really have to find people that want to do it for the right reasons, not for the compensation? Yeah, I'm kind of conflicted on that. So
0: I wish that we would pay our special operations people more, but being able to uphold a standard and by the time they got there, know that they're there for the right reason. I think in the NFL, you know, it's contract-based And you're paid based on what you could do or what you've done up to a point and people think you will continue to do. It's not actually paid for performance because your contract gets signed before you put the jersey on for that team.
1: Sure.
0: Um, You know, I think everyone says we should pay – teachers more because they do such a great job uh you know we have public schools and private schools private schools are there for that yeah i think Uh, i don't have kids so i can only go so deep on on the topic but i do think that uh you know there's a there's a balance to strike with incentives and pay I, i don't know that people would be rucking hundreds of miles and you know, blowing out their knees and trading gunfire in the middle of the night and and sucking ass on a mountain in Afghanistan to earn what you could earn as like a mid level manager at like GE. Yeah. Um, but what you made me think of was I think I had some econ professor explain this about uh, how police are compensated, right? So you trade high power with low pay. Like you carry a gun, you have the power to arrest people. You have the authority of the badge. I know I'm like treading talking about police in 2021, but you have lower compensation because you have higher power in your job. However, you have a big pension. So not a big pension, but a steady, a steady, like reliable pension at the end. So if you, if you go for all of those years, at a lower pay rate, which I think in fire and police gets very stratified at the top, but you're talking about a very like, small handful of people, yeah. like chief of department, commissioner, whatever. But if you're willing to accept that lower pay for a longer period of time, there's a pension waiting for you. And that's like security and retirement. The military has that too, right? They have yeah. like a, a military retirement. I try not to call it a retirement. I try to call it a pension because <laughs> I think it, like there's no way I would. Like if I stayed in for 20 years and cashed it out at 20, I'd be 38, which is where I'll be in two years anyway. Right. It's a pension. It's not a retirement. Yeah. And it's like we talk to people who've gone past the 10 year mark and there's always that pull to like, just make it to 20, you know, just make it to 20 and you're, you're giving stuff up by not making it to 20. So we talk about that with people too. For me, it
1: was always if I can earn more prior to that, and put money away myself, I'd be paying my own retirement. Like I, yeah. at some point you'll do better than what the military retirement or pension would be, you know? Yeah.
0: My, my lifetime value with the professional growth opportunity from getting out earlier, and there are other things that went into my timing to leave. It was like I'm not money bags over here. I kind of explain that away by saying, well, okay, the professional growth that I get in the years leading up to where I would have retired, lifetime value is going to be worth more so so i I was never bothered by that argument i mean i certainly like considered it but then did cost benefit whatever decided i believed in myself and that like that was something i was fine with leaving on the table yeah for me
1: the timing was such that you know i I made e eight I think in like twelve years and was pretty fast along with rank, so pay was never really yeah. but I was kind of done with the whole thing until the combat started, so it's like i got I got to where my goal was, I achieved that level of this is where I want to be, recognized that every day is is a competition just to stay there
0: yeah.
1: And it got very boring very quickly, just because it was a cyclical, oh, now it's time to do this. Now it's time to do that. It's this time of the year again, and kind of grew old very quickly. And about that time was when the combat thing started, and then that was a new challenge. So that kind of kept me happy until maybe 15 years in. And at 15 years, 16 years maybe, was kind of okay, now I've done the combat thing. How, how many more times do I need to go do this to prove to myself that I can do it? Or is there something else that I'm looking for? Yeah. And, and that, anyway, it, at that point it became like, well, now I'd be dumb to get out because I only have a handful of years left. But I remember getting to the unit and seeing people that had served there for like 16 years and they were legends. You know, There was no war then. Uh, And like you mentioned, aside from a handful of conflicts, if you were lucky to be a part of it, you know, maybe you got to be legendary in that manner too, but most people had not. So it really had to do with like the longevity of how long they had been there and how physical they were and their scores on shooting evals and things like that was what gave them legend status. And when I first got there, I thought I'm never leaving here. Like, I love it. And it's like working at Disneyland. But after a handful of years, you know, maybe five years in total, I was ready to move on to the next thing and challenge myself. And so it wasn't until then that I started thinking about why am I different than the legends that spent 16 years in the building or that deployed 19 times? Or is it that I'm scared to deploy to combat? No, I've done that. Is it that my family life is taking a toll? Maybe. But what is it that is different that I'm, I'm ready to move on? And I probably learned the most about myself then in terms of needing something to challenge myself. You know, like I, I need something to do that's not, I can't just be happy with, okay, now I'm here and, and that's it. And my life is going to go no further. What else can I do? Using the NFL analogy, you know, there, not everybody can be a commentator. Not everybody can be a personality on TV uh, on the the halftime show, yeah. and only certain dudes can do that. And that's that to me would be like the ultimate. Like this guy that goes and plays in the NFL, he crushes it for a handful of years, has a great brand, leaves intact, does the commentary <laughs> thing, writes books, whatever. OJ you know, like, did that. Yeah, <laughs> movies. <laughs> yeah. Hey, wait. Yeah, (laughs) hurts commercials. (laughs) The Naked Gun, yeah, Yeah. but you know what I mean. It's 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 being more than just that thing. Anyway, I have had a conversation really recently, and I'd be interested in your thought on this too. Somebody asked me, like, was it hard for you transitioning? Was it hard for you uh, to get out? And how did that process go and everything else? And and to be honest, I never really struggled. I feel like I stayed plugged into the community that I came from and dudes that I love and would do anything for to help out in any way. I I stayed plugged into that. And also I guess I never fully identified as just my job. Like what, what my job is, is my life. It's my everything. And I never fully identified with that. You know, like I'm more things than an operational guy. I'm, a father. I'm a son. I'm a husband. I'm a musician, whatever it might be, but I'm all of these things, not just, you know, an operational dude. And I feel like the people that struggled the most that I've seen that have struggled the most are people that have wholly identified with, you know, the thing that they do. Yeah. And so when it's either taken away by injury or it's taken away by being wounded in combat and they can't do it anymore it's it's like that uncle rico thing right where it's like they just never get beyond it and yeah. they struggle with it and uh i don't know for me combined with uh, continuing to challenge yourself and find new things and and everything else like I, I really didn't struggle i didn't have some moment that i felt like man this is horrible i'd rather be back there so i'd be interested in your thoughts on that and If that's something that you witnessed, like, so the example I gave is I've seen dudes that were literally probably the most amazing commandos that, that you could possibly be dudes that were phenomenal, second to none. And, and they were utter failures in pretty much every other aspect of their life. So is that being a good human being? Is that being good at all of the aspects of your life? Or is that just being good at this one thing?
0: my resume before joining the military was high school student. <laughs> so I had absolutely zero life experience before coming in. And I think it would probably was very easy for me to just like pick up my wholesale identity at this, you know, supply room <laughs> along with my gear. I don't think I struggled with it either more than, more than you normally would. Right. And just like, Just typically, like, leaving all your friends and the the thing that you know how to be good at. Because that's another thing. It's like, if you do a specialized job at a high level, you're like, okay, this is the thing that I'm best at professionally in life. Now I have to go find another thing to do really well. And some days it's, like, incredibly... Refreshing and invigorating because you're getting to learn, you're getting to do things for the first time. But other days you're like, you know what, man, fuck it. Like I used to be the best at this other thing and I just want like one of those days where I can just enjoy being like really fucking awesome at something Um, and I don't feel like struggling today, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I can see how some some of that goes. You know, you made a comment about, the choice being made for you, for some people, right? Whether you're injured or otherwise due to family stuff or the, the world tells you when to stop. You don't get to. Sure. And some people that's just retirement. Yeah. That's just like, you got, you got old man and it's not there for you anymore. Like you got to find something new. Yeah. Right. And so a lot of those people just choose something that's like very close to or military adjacent. And if they get, still get fulfillment out of that, great. But sometimes it leaves a little bit lacking as well because it's not the real thing anymore.
1: I think also, too, and I've had this conversation with people, but even to some degree, you can go out of the military and still go do a very militaristic job other places. And that, that's not really transitioning either. And as long as this is not a a PC term, but, you know, I grew up, we played cowboys and Indians, and at some point you can't play cowboys and Indians when you're 73. At what point does it end, and at what point are you doing something else? And that's when your transition begins. So if you stay in the military and you're at 30, you know, whatever it might be, uh, and you get a job and we've seen people that, you know, work as GSs and that's great. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. Definitely. There's probably a transition with those people too. I think it's a different type of transition yeah. because now you're not, you're not the hero that's rolling out the door to go fulfill the mission. You're the guy that's supporting that in some way, shape or form. And that probably has its own challenges, but yeah. I don't think people tend to think of things in those terms. Yeah. Even the small stuff, like, well, maybe
0: not small stuff, but, like, physical fitness, it used to just be part of my job. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily, like, hit the gym unless I had a lot of spare time on my hands. But now, you know, if your job is, like, computer-based or you're just, like, any other professional person walking around, that's, like, also a piece of your identity. I'm a freaking physical specimen, right? Yeah. When I was in my 20s kind of more like the Uncle Rico thing <laughs> yeah. um, I think I when I first left I took to like being that dude who took rec league sports maybe a bit too seriously <laughs> but I was I was self-aware about it yeah. so I wouldn't I wouldn't totally go off the deep end and people would be like who the, who is that guy but I'd be like you know like I really want to do well at this so I was like plugging a really small plug
1: into a big hole yeah, <laughs> right yeah, yeah. but also, too, and this, this is another thing that I'm guilty of, even with the band stuff, it's like you're only as fast as your slowest guy, you know? Yeah. And so there are constraints with everything in life. And so just because I'm ready to go do X, Y, and Z at this pace doesn't mean that everybody else in the group is able to do that. And so for me, one of the learning lessons with the music thing is just taking things down to different levels so that we're accomplishing something as a group and not me accomplishing, accomplishing something as an individual. That's been interesting and also a, a great learning lesson. You it, it applies in the military. You learn it very quickly. When your brand-new private falls out of the run and you make the other privates carry him up cardiac hill or whatever it might be, or dude becomes a heat casualty and now you've got to carry all of his stuff too. Like, it doesn't just go away. Yeah. So... Outside of the military, I don't think people get that. it's a more of an individual thing it's more of a and I feel like places that are successful understand that and kind of encompass everybody and not to be fair, yeah. because I hate the word fair but but they get that
0: yeah, I choose meritocratic over fair that's where I want to be, maybe somewhere where there's there's the right type of recognition and and responsibility pay out. Versus fair. I think I share your disdain for the word.
1: (laughs) I remember one time, and uh, I've got some teammates that will echo this, but someone said, well, this is still the Army. And man, it was like someone stuck a knife in my chest when they said that. Yeah, definitely heard that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's a, that's a big one.
1: <laughs> I think, I think fair, several people Fair and up. This is Still the Army are two two that I hate. And, yeah. uh, and a third is no. Like <laughs> I do not like being told no. Hey, everyone.
0: Time for this episode's intermission. We want to give you some more info about Brad's band and some of the organizations they support. You can check out Silence and Light at silenceandlightmusic.com. There you can find links to their Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, or just go search directly. I think you know how to do that. You'll also see links there to support Warrior's Heart and the Marine Raider Foundation. Warrior's Heart private licensed healing centers specialize in substance abuse treatment and co-occurring psychological disorders with special attention to post-traumatic stress, unresolved grief or loss, and moral injury. For more information, check out warriorsheart.com. The Marine Raider Foundation provides support to active duty and medically retired members of the Marine Corps Special Operations and their families, as well as families of Raiders who've lost their lives in service to our nation. To find out more, go to marineraiderfoundation.org. If you're interested in more about the podcast, you can go check us out at thankynowwhat.com. We have our entire backlog of episodes and descriptions. You can see links to our Twitter and Instagram, both ThankYouNowWhat. Uh, maybe pick up a t-shirt if you want. You can also email us at thankyounowwhat at gmail.com for any show feedback. If you really like what we're doing and you want to contribute to the show, you'll see links for PayPal and Patreon. Patreon subscription starts just a dollar an episode, so click the link or head to patreon.com slash thankyounowwhat to see more. Please know that through PayPal or Patreon or or any other way you support us, uh, that when you share in the cost of doing business with us, whatever doesn't go straight to production costs gets redirected to nonprofits that support or honor veterans a very sincere thank you to those who take part we're always very humbled that people enjoy the show enough to do this as far as intangibles we appreciate any interaction on our social media as well as any reviews on your favorite podcast player that you're listening right now finally the simplest thing you can do is tell someone about the show so we can keep spreading by word of mouth thanks and let's get back to the episode Was having the uh, music by your side all along another thing that helped maintain an identity that was more well-rounded and, and outside of the military? Or was it something that, do you think it's important to have something that's your thing that's not your entire life is encompassed by your job? And how much were you keeping up with like, any kind of musical
1: endeavors during your service? So we talked um, about before and after. Yeah, yeah. So music, when I, when I joined, I sold all my shit, thousands of dollars worth of stuff, and would do just about anything to have a lot of that stuff back because it's, you know, I bought it brand new and now it's a relic or now it's, you know, yeah. worth a ton of money. Not for the money aspect, but just from this was back when this stuff was just, you know, kind of first coming out and I got it, you know, so... I got rid of all my stuff. I got to the Rangers and was there for a handful of months. And I had a buddy, I think I can't remember exactly where we were. It might've been Spinnaker's or Club La Vila down in Panama city beach, you know, spring break time or summertime or something like that. And I'm like wasted at the bar and there's a live music going on in this band that's playing some great tunes. And all of a sudden, I hear the band calling. Would Brad come to the stage? Brad, you know, where are you at? And so I'm like, I think they're calling my name. So I go walking over there, and the guy goes, one of the band guys goes, uh, "Hey man, we heard it's your birthday, and you always had this wish to like get up and play on stage." <laughs> and I was like, okay, sure. So we figured out a tune that we all knew, and uh, I went up and played, and I pretty much blew away everybody that was on the stage. And I think that was the first time that like my friends at the time saw like, Oh wow, shit, dude can, you know, dude can do it. Yeah. And that kind of lit the spark that then, you know, went out and got a couple of guitars and then got a half stack and then roll that into my barracks room. And then people would start hanging out in my room and I'm playing music and that kind of always continued until I guess the point that I had kids and Kids didn't put an end to it. It just changed. Like I, I put my everything into my kids. Like if I wasn't deployed, or if I wasn't away training, and you know we were smart about not staying at work until seven or eight o'clock at night, I was home playing with my kids and doing stuff with them. So I put a lot into that. As soon as they were a little bit older and more self-sufficient, that's when you know I kind of started the next endeavor, which was another band and even that it was a process so you know started in like maybe 2005 and jumped in with some dudes and like maybe we played a show out and then these dudes in this other band saw me playing with these guys and so they gave me a call and you know hey jump in with us and so I kind of worked my way up the ladder in Fayetteville until I was playing with you know probably the biggest band in Fayetteville and we were opening for uh, national acts that were coming through and playing, you know, the rock shop and stuff like that. So that kind of fed into retirement. And next thing I know I'm leaving Fayetteville and I'm moving to New York city. And then kind of, that's where the story begins. The more modern version begins. So yeah, it's always, it's always been with me. It's always been a huge outlet for me. And some people are music people and I don't mean musicians, but some people just, they connect emotionally with music. Some people just listen to it. Some people could care less. I've always been, like, very, very connected. It could be smells. It could be a song. It could be whatever. And, man, like, I'm instantly back in a place. And uh, Mm. it's very powerful to me. So I want to talk about the decision to
0: move to New York. But uh, I know that you have an interesting story about meeting your wife.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 So I had... uh, I had gotten a, uh, an FDNY patch soon after September 11th happened and I was away running the selection course and someone from FDNY had sent a box of FDNY patches down to the unit. So I got, I got home from running selection and I think it was a Saturday and was walking past the bar in our uh, office area. And I saw this box sitting on the bar. And the bar was kind of a place where, you know, it was stuff that was up for grabs. Could be an important notice. You know, somebody says, hey, party or barbecue at so-and-so's house on Saturday night. Could be some piece of junk sling that somebody was getting rid of. And anyway, looked into this box and I saw these FDMY patches. And I started thumbing through them because there were a whole bunch in there. And some of them had names on the back. Some of them had phrases written like, rotten hell, motherfucker. And I kind of recognized, oh, somebody must have sent these down and they want us to take them over when we deploy. Not 100% sure of the intent, but you know, I'm happy to take one and bring it along with me. So I grabbed one for myself and then I grabbed one for the other guys on my team because I was worried that by by the time Monday rolled around, they'd all be gone. So I went back to the team room and I threw one on everybody's bag and the one that I had had a name on it. And I remember thinking, because this was before, really kind of before the war kicked off, I remember wondering, like, if this guy is still alive, number one. And number two, I hope that someday, like, I don't know where we're going or how long we're going to go or what's going to happen. You know, Is everybody going to live? Is everybody going to die? Is it going to be you know, like real action, is it gonna be whatever. It was a complete unknown, but I remember thinking, I hope at some point I can sit down with this dude over a beer and tell him the places this went and the good things that it was a part of, all kind of representing the firemen and people that had died September 11th. So that was kind of the first part of it. So I, I took this patch and it went with me everywhere that I deployed and was a part of all the stuff that I did and things like that. And years later, I've still got the patch and I'm on my treadmill in my house and it's September 11th. And they have family members reading the names of people that had been killed on September 11th. So I'm running on the treadmill. My kids are running in the room, put on SpongeBob. I put on SpongeBob. They leave the room, I put Fox News back on, and (laughs) I'm watching the reading of the names. They come back in and we go back and forth a couple times with SpongeBob and Fox News. And all of a sudden I see this woman and she's on TV and she says, and my brother, and she says the name that's on the patch that I carried. And I was like, wow, that's pretty amazing. So that's that's this guy's sister. And I, I realized too, that then he was one of the people that was killed. So I started thinking about that and I started wondering like, man, I wonder, is this like, is this a person that's like my, what do they call it? Like guardian angel, you know, is this someone who's there protecting me? Is this, is this nobody? I don't, I don't know, but it, it made me start thinking about that. And so I jumped off the treadmill and I Googled him because now the internet was kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And I read an article that was about his wife and, it talked a lot about him and his personality, the things that he liked, and he was a surfer and he loved animals and all this stuff, and he loved wearing flannel shirts and stuff like that and And I was like, man, I've like got a lot in common with this guy. you know it just sounded like it could have been an article about me, and just substitute name, you know, yeah. et cetera. so anyway, I read what firehouse he was assigned to and that a bunch of his other, you know, housemates had been killed, and I think they lost the most guys of any firehouse in Manhattan. So, I called a buddy of mine in New York, and I said, look, man, I'm, I'm going to be up that way soon. I want to put something together, but can you take me by this firehouse? I don't know how to get there or where it is. It's got to be super low key. Like, I'm still an operational person and can't really talk about what I do, and where I've gone and things like that. And uh, you know, can you hook that up? And he said, absolutely. So months go by and I took this patch, the FDNY patch, and I took one of the big flags off of my assault vest and I got a unit coin and I had it framed in this uh, red, white, and blue matted frame. And it was beautiful, like it was powerful. You know, if you knew what these items were, It's an incredibly powerful, you know, been a part of historic things. And months later, I end up up in New York and a couple days go by. And I I asked my friend who coordinated the whole thing, you know, hey, when are we going to go by the firehouse? And he was like, oh, we're we're out. And by the way, we're out like drinking and having dinner or something like that. And it's probably like 10 o'clock at night. And he says, yeah, we're going to go by there tomorrow morning. I'm like, okay. Now I'm a little bit nervous because I just want to slide in and slide out, totally low key. I have a couple more martinis, and he says, "Oh, hey, I got to tell you something about tomorrow. We're gonna, we're gonna go there at ten o'clock because that's when all the firemen, you know, on the night shift are leaving, so they'll all be there, and yeah. all the morning shift guys will be coming on board." <laughs> and I was like, "Yo, like, no, 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 we're no part like of low key, yeah, yeah. I, like." <laughs> So anyway, he can see that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of starting to stress a little bit. So I have another martini or two and he says, Hey, I got to tell you something else (laughs) about tomorrow. And I'm like, dude, uh, he goes, yeah, the family's all going to be there too. And I'm like, you're, you're killing me, man. Like, I don't want to see them. I have no desire to talk to anybody about anything. Just give them this thing, kind of tell them a little, you know, little quick snippet and i'm out of there that's it i don't like public speaking and so anyway uh the next day comes and we go to the firehouse and i meet the firemen you know we're, we're kind of doing small talk in their kitchen and i'm drinking coffee hungover like a madman and something the, completely foreign to them i'm sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> the captain says uh hey brad so why don't we go up front in front of the hook and ladder truck and uh and you tell us why you're here, <laughs> and so now I'm in front of this huge group of people, and uh, you know I'm trying to figure out very plain ways to tell them where I'm from and and where this thing has been and everything else. And at some point, uh, I, I tell the person that I'm with, like, "Hey, man, I'm just going for it," you know. And if I can't tell these people why I'm here, it really was to say. This was at a time like 2006, where the war was hitting a, a major like political low, and IEDs every day, and you know they were taking pictures of all the flag draped coffins being loaded on planes and everything else, and and so all of a sudden it was like, why are we there? This is horrible. Well, you know this was George's daddy's oil war that he didn't complete, and it was a very politically unpopular thing, and I wanted the firemen to know that as of right now, while I'm standing here talking to you, there are dudes over there shellacking motherfuckers because of what happened September 11th. And don't ever forget that. Like they'll do that until the day this thing comes to an end. And, uh, it was a pretty powerful moment. You know, I don't think anybody there had a dry eye anyway, ended up Meeting the sister of the person whose patch I had carried for all these years. And, and that was the start of a friendship. And it wasn't until I moved to New York and started some work here that we started dating and then ended up getting married. Yeah. Man. That's an incredible story. And I'm giving you the G-rated version. <laughs> after that, the firemen were like, let's go burn it down. It's 10.30 in the morning, 11 in the morning. And they're like, let's go burn All the night guys are like, let's go burn it down. Dragged me out to a bar. I'm like, dude, I got to fly in a couple hours. Like, I flew yeah. from here to Boston after that. And they got me. And they're like, we'll hold the plane, bro. Like, <laughs> you don't understand. We'll get you there. Don't worry. Let's go. Yeah. And, uh, go sirens to JFK. <laughs> yeah. Dude. <laughs> Anyway, where did you see, go, McSorley's or something? Somewhere you can drink at 10 a.m. No, it's just some sidewalk place right oh, yeah. down. They were in a firehouse in Greenwich Village, so they were they were in a super nice uh, part of the city. But we went down a handful of blocks and found a you know oh, yeah. sidewalk place, and then we started getting it on. Fucking hey. <laughs> How much did that all influence your decision to come to New York City? Also, I don't know where you're originally from. Uh, originally from north side of DC, like yeah. Maryland, Montgomery County area. Yeah, so. I grew up in maryland we had four seasons and i always liked that and then i spent 20 years in the south eight of which at fort benning 12 of which at fort bragg and it was kind of like not a lot of culture not a lot of seasons not a lot of nice weather and so i was i had a handful of opportunities and the one that i ended up selecting was the one in new york yeah because it gave me Kind of the culture thing and it gave me the four seasons and kind of being back i love fall i love summer into fall like that's my favorite time of year and then also some snow like i'm cool with that now that i've been here for 11 years i'm ready to leave <laughs> and i bought a place down in wrightsville beach so uh no shit yeah back to north carolina yeah but not full time like that'll yeah. be a, a second home for until my younger son finishes up college and has plans and knows what he's doing because I don't want to I don't want to pull the rug out from under him you know Yeah. yeah I think that's important how do you balance the music the job and the family so the family's become really easy because all my kids are out of the house my youngest son's in college so he's he's easy but even even prior to that you know at about 14 he's he's out with his friends and he's hanging out with his friends. So hanging out with his dad on a Saturday night, isn't really a big deal. Yeah, My wife's super supportive of the whole music thing. And I think she understands it now that it's like, she was really worried when it started that it was going to be like the Brad show and like an ego thing. And nothing could be further from the truth. Like this is more about me representing and being a good representative of the community than it is about me. And, you know, as I mentioned before, it's kind of a thing that's supposed to be the old ranger, lead the way and lead by example. It's meant to be something like that, where, hey, if I can do this and I can figure out a way to be healthy and positive and creative, then anybody can do it. Balancing work and family and music, it's all one big ball of shit. And I don't mean that in a bad way to sound bad, I get up at 5 15 in the morning and i'm on my phone until it stops you know i do stuff all day long every day there is no weekend <laughs> there is no vacation even when you're on vacation there's no off switch and that's that's one of the things that i think the cell phone has done the connectivity part is amazing but the the sense of never really being off because you're reachable 24-7. Yeah. So anyway, I get on the phone and I just do stuff. And even band stuff ties into work stuff. And work stuff ties into band stuff. And this person that I know through my day job is asking me questions about something that I posted on social media about band stuff. It just, like, it all bleeds together. So the band mission, other than, you know, the logistics of how we do what we do and needing to converse about that. There's very little business aspect that has to be taken care of on a daily basis. So that part's a little bit easier. The creating part kind of takes a little bit of conversation, but really the stuff that I do that's, you know, media, social media stuff, podcasts, interviews, articles, that's all happening all the time, whether it's 10 o'clock at night (laughs) or like like tonight, <laughs> yeah. or it's uh, at five in the morning on a Saturday. It's just it's all one big ball of get stuff done, and so far nothing has like made the other suffer. I toy around with
0: this idea of work life integration, using that word instead of balance. Balance, I think, implies that you shut one down, open one back up, either one or several periods a day. But I think especially in COVID, and for some people even before that, it's just integrated. Yeah. You have plates spinning, one's work,
1: one's life, one's home life, yeah. one's band or podcast. Yeah. There, yeah. Are, there are balls in the air at all times. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's one of the things that I enjoy. It's like the amount of activity and the amount of things, it kind of nonstop. So every now and again, I'll get to the point of a little bit overwhelmed. And uh, I'll pull back a little bit on one of them. That's always a very easy thing to do for me. I don't, I don't feel like there's a whole lot of having too much and and not being able to keep up. I don't, I don't think that's the thing. What? Well, how did you
0: pick the? Uh, or how do you pick where your proceeds go?
1: So initially, the thought was, and this is from the very beginning, each band member would pick a charitable organization that they felt strongly about. Yeah. They would know how to talk about it if they were doing any sort of media or press or whatever. They could speak to it and hit all the talking points and everything else. Right. Which quickly turned into me doing all the media and everything. So, I couldn't remember five dudes stuff. Thanks guys. Thanks yeah. for your work on the group project. Yeah, yeah good job. Um, You know, anyway, it it ended up being uh, all my stuff. And the the thing that I picked was Warrior's Heart. And that was, it's a physical place in Texas that a fellow former unit member stood up. And it's a facility that helps get dudes clean. It gives them counseling and PTSD. And it's got therapy of... Art and that's one of the things that they use as like a main form of therapy. Whether art is welding or painting or writing or poetry or music or whatever, and uh, so I, I just felt very strongly about that. I liked it at the time. You know, and this is a few years ago when this when this first started. I liked that someone recognized that like PTSD isn't just a thing by itself. PTSD is like it's a big ball of ugly stuff where usually there's a substance abuse problem woven in there's marital problems there's all kinds of other dynamics happening and so i really like the idea of getting dudes clean before you start you know kind of going at the deep dark stuff and then once you start exploring that deep start dark stuff is like having an outlet that's kind of teaching people how to do it in a creative way so anyway, that that was the one that I had picked, and so right now we're contributing to two, uh, Warrior's Heart being one, and Marine Raider Foundation being the other. Uh, that's just because Tyson, who was the former Marine Raider, he did some of the early you know podcasts and press stuff with me, so yeah. I learned a little bit more about what they do. But they're basically providing direct support to family members of uh, fallen Marine Raiders. So. There were some guys a few years back that were killed in a plane crash. I think there's seven of them, you know, and that's something that took care of, of those guys' families, whether they needed hotels to stay in for memorial services or flights or any of that stuff, they were able to directly compensate, you know, give the family some sort of compensation to be able to take care of stuff. Yeah. So those are the two that we're supporting. I think at some and we may, after this next album, we'll probably switch things up just because this isn't really about how much we're contributing monetarily to these organizations. It's that every time I do one of these podcasts, I'm talking and bringing awareness to these things so that other people can contribute in whatever way. Yeah, And uh, that that really does more for it than, than any amount of money that I could give it. So I think at some point we'll probably switch it up and decide to include somebody else or talk about something else too, just to bring awareness. Cause I feel like I've been a pretty good ambassador of warrior's heart for the past two years. Our strategy is a little more haphazard.
0: I think we started out with just, I mean, it didn't start out haphazard, right? Uh, we, we initially started, you know, promoting coast to coast, which, you know, Ryan Savard yeah. is a good friend of mine. Also everyone that runs that charity is also a good friend of mine. Talk about small steps in speech, which you probably didn't, haven't heard of because it's like a children's speech language pathology. Um, oh, that's cool, charity, but it's uh, in honor of my my buddy from the SF medic course, Mark Small, who uh, was killed in 09. But we started as sort of, kind of like you know, honoring people I knew personally, but then. People, like you know being in the veteran community everybody tries to give back everyone finds their own ways to give back we all do it and so everyone who started coming on the show they're like oh you're involved in this you're involved in this everyone's involved in something and so we try to make it you know like episode topical to the episode what that person cares about or or where they're directly involved or if we yeah. have a tie-in with a previous guest um and we really just try to like spread awareness, whatever. And then anything that we make off the show, we never pocket any of it. So we put a little bit to like production costs. Uh, and then last year, we put more than half back into the charities that we either discuss on the show or people come on and talk about them too. And again, it's like we're never going to be able to have... Our, our awareness aspect is probably outsizing our, our monetary impact by far. Yeah.
1: You know, we're small time. It's right. funny because... You know, early on, the desire was like, hey, we sell X amount of songs. We will take that, you know, and give it to these organizations. And you realize very quickly, like, oh, to sell your shit on iTunes, you have to agree to Apple Music. And so, why am I going to get on and pay for something on iTunes when I can just stream it on Apple Music or Spotify? And yeah. so, we elected early on rather than do something that was like, okay, here's a CD you have to buy that it would be better to get out there and at least do it and whether it makes a dime or, or none Mm -hmm. or a million dollars, like we just want to get it out there so that people have access to it and then it can grow that way too. So it's interesting because we're like verified artists on Apple music and Spotify and everything else. So we can see uh, the analytics of, hey, our average listener, which is another surprise, is like 18 to 31 male, you know, like that's kind of cool, you know, like we're hitting young kids or hitting people that, you know, it's not not a bunch of old veterans sitting around listening to sad campfire songs about deployment, you know, it's not that at all. So that's been a real surprise. And then in terms of that, like if somebody does buy a song or buy an album, you know, we don't get that whole amount. There are multiple layers of things that, you know, get paid for. Apple Music takes 30 cents of a song. So if they sell it for 99 cents, you're starting at 69 cents. And then the aggregator, which is the third party that uploads it onto these platforms and gives it a UPC code so that it can be a sold item, they're taking 7 cents. And then, you know, start trickling that down, you know, it's pretty thin. so we uh we funded self-funded the album and people will say that too they'll be like why don't you do a go fund me like i'm not going to ask people for money so that i can go like make an album it, that just seems like super counterintuitive to the whole message of what we're trying to do yeah like i don't want somebody to have to spend money buy a song if you want to support this buy a song stream it whatever we're getting you know royalties from streaming too so If they want to support the band to help offset the costs of all the things that we do, which is pretty phenomenal, they can buy merchandise on our website, whether it's t-shirts or hats or whatever. And we're kind of with this next album, we're going to revamp everything. So we've got new merchandise coming and all that stuff. I think we're going to do some vinyl that we sell mainly, not because everybody is going to buy it to listen to the record, but it'll be a pretty cool piece of artwork too. So. Yeah. You know, they get something, but know that that'll, that'll also help like, offset costs that we incur. I think the first album cost us to the tune of about 35 G's to make and record, and that was all done properly. Like, we didn't get any handouts. The only person that we didn't have to pay for his time was our producer, who's, you know, multi Grammy award winning, probably like the hottest producer in music today. But he's a veteran also. So he reached out and was like, How can I help? You know, I'd be happy to produce and I don't ever do this. So consider it a a helping hand. But nobody's given us anything other than, you know, help out in that regard. So everything costs money. Mastering costs money. Mixing costs money. Studio time costs money. Traveling costs money. Hotels, all of that stuff. So when you pile all that stuff together, man, it's a pretty exorbitant amount. <laughs> you know, yeah, but uh, fortunately, we're able to do it ourselves. So,
0: are you guys going to tour?
1: Um you Yeah. Know, How does that look with COVID? So with COVID, nobody's doing anything. I mean, it's been shut down since last March, basically mid March. Everything shut down. Okay. Everything that was scheduled for last summer got pushed to this summer. But I'm already seeing stuff getting pushed to like spring of 22. So we are playing a show that's a a benefit show with uh, old dominion band and i'm not super familiar with them but they're pretty effing huge with them end of april in dc area we did a similar event with lenny kravitz well it was the same event but different year november of 2019 so i don't think any of us are are keen to like load in a van and drive up and down the east coast playing Small clubs in front of 80 people. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, based on our demographic and where we can see people, you know, are buying music and streaming music, it's predominantly North Carolina, Georgia, New York, L.A., you know, places like that. Seattle is another big one in Texas. That's where the majority of, of the fans are, but there are fans worldwide, which is pretty cool. I don't think any of us want to go driving in a van up and down the East Coast playing for, you know, a handful of people. So we'd rather do things like festivals or special benefit stuff or USO stuff. So we had some USO stuff in the works right as COVID started kicking off. And uh, that whole thing it was like 10 days, yeah. seven countries, you know, seven bases or something like that. And it was oh, like, nice. dude, that would have been awesome. Yeah. You, know, you get a per diem. Or, you know, whatever, I can buy ramen every day or some planter's peanuts or something, you know, some pistachios. Get that next deployment in and go
0: over to uh, Afghanistan.
1: Exactly. But, you know, something like that would be awesome. We'd love to do something like that. But I think probably not going to be happening until the fall. So we record next album most of June into July. Hopefully that'll be releasing, like, mid to late August, maybe beginning of September, but that's kind of the, kind of the time frame. We've got a publicist involved now. So for us, I feel like we're pretty well-known in the community and I feel like we're pretty well-known just, you know, military veteran, first responder community. I think we've done a pretty good job of getting out there. And I think that's our base, like anything to be super successful, you kind of have to branch out of that. Yeah. And so we're bringing a publicist on board to do this album cycle, and she'll help. She's the same. She's Ozzy's publicist too, which is pretty cool. But oh, nice. Um, yeah, and isn't free, by the way. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll bring her on board, and she'll get us out to like more mainstream music, you know, outlets and things like that. And every I talked with probably eight of the best uh, publicists in the business, and it was pretty cool because. They didn't necessarily compete over us, but they're like, these are people that are doing damage control for like, this guy was on drugs and crashed his car and killed three kids. And like, <laughs> they have to do damage control for that. Like yeah. that's, that's a lot of their job, not just promotional stuff, but it's, it's, you know, figuring out and solving problems. And so for us, it's like, these guys all have kids. Well, Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's, it's not even that. It just, it's, it's a good story, right? Yeah. It's like, Hey, we're a bunch of dudes. We're doing something yeah healthy, positive, and creative. You're not going to flip your vet right. rolling roll down uh, A1A. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, maybe. There's still hope. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but every one of them was like, dude, we love it. We love the story. This is an easy sell. And uh, just when you have music samples ready to go for the next album, one of the things that was kind of educational for me was like a publicist, and, and this is what I told them, was like, I don't want to promote backwards. I don't want to say hey, we've got this album that came out in December of 2019. Like, okay, you can find it. If you listen to this podcast and you Google Silence and Light, you will find all kinds of stuff. It's not hard to find. So people will, through podcasts and things like that, they'll, they'll find it. But really, it's about promoting the next thing. And I'll be doing a whole separate media spin for that.
0: We kind of feel that way. It's like we had some early episodes which are awesome, but it's before you grow your listenership. So it's like, oh, man, you know, we try not to promote backwards. But I'm like, anyone who asks me, like, oh, you have a podcast? What episode shall I listen? You know, I was like, this one's a must listen. This one's a must listen. What are you into? But, yeah, it's kind of like a chicken and egg thing. Yeah. You know, put it out there. Yeah.
1: And then also, too, it's, it's one of those things where, like, we've grown as a band. Like, it basically, I was just telling this story the other day, but we, like, limped the first album across the finish line. mm You know, just got enough songs together and completed to go into the studio in L.A. And once we got them all laid down and you started listening back to stuff, not that we hadn't heard it because we can like self-record and we have other small studios that we use for rehearsal and kind of demo recording and things like that, but you start putting it all together and you're like, man this song doesn't really fit with the group and i don't really like the lyric content of that because i don't feel like it represents you know what we should be talking about and Mm. so all of a sudden you're in a spot where you're like okay we recorded 12 songs but like here are the eight that i think we can release and so we ended up having to chop like four songs so where that left us was this is your sound so there's there's part of it is do all these songs fit together as an entire piece of work, not just one song. If you listen to Metallica's first album, as an example, every song sounds pretty much the same. Like it's the same guitar sound. It's the same drum sound. There's not really a lot of dynamic up and down. It all fits together. It all fits together really well. So once we kind of figured out like, okay, this is our sound. This is our thing. This is what fits in this box. Then it was very easy to kind of continue to write songs like that, and it wasn't until more recently where I cooked up with you know this new song, and that turned into like wow this is altogether kind of like a step above that. So, thankfully, due to COVID, I was able to write a complete album, and then we rehearsed it multiple times. We're getting ready to record it, and then kind of took a step back and said, hold on, we've got some new material that we feel like is even better. So why release something even though it's done? Why, you know, get to that point and uh, and not put your best foot forward? So we elected to take like a three-month pause, finish rehearsing this stuff, get it completed, and then go record it, and that's what we're doing. So it was interesting. You were asking earlier about, like, inspiration. So I feel like the first album was kind of like, If I was to describe it, it's like deployment. It's that life. It's not my life now. And interestingly, I've been going down to Fort Benning quite a bit, and that's where my military career started. But there was something that was happening right when I got there, and that was the whole grunge scene was just starting to kind of pop. And so I remember hearing like Nirvana for the first time low-crawling down the barracks hallway, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Uh, buffing the hallway, you know, at two in the morning or whatever it might be. That's, that's kind of like the first time I remember that. And when I think back to those times and when I go to Fort Benning, there's this overwhelming feeling and I haven't been able to pinpoint it with a word. It's not uneasiness, but it reminds me of the time in my life when like I didn't know what tomorrow brings, you know, like everybody around me is quitting this guy gets a DUI and he goes down the road to another unit. This guy has a heat casualty during, you know, a road march and he's gone. And it just, it was this very like uncertain time. And in the middle of all of that was like this amazing, explosive grunge scene that was just hitting. And it was all over MTV and it was all over, you know, if you went out to a bar, these are the cover tunes that bands were playing and stuff like that. And, uh, I don't know, it's very inspired by whatever that is. So it's not like, and I don't think I can write a song that's like happy and poppy and snappy, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's also not, not like, like Wallow in Sorrow. It's none of it's like that. But this stuff is all like super upbeat, super high energy, and uh, and it's just way more mature than the first the first album because we've been able to kind of like figure out who we are, what our sound is, what we want to say all of that stuff you know so it's kind of cool
0: i get that feeling where i think earlier on you said that you would associate a smell with something i think sense of smell is actually one of our strongest memory senses yeah but i also just hearing you talk about just being like a private or something if i'm out in the morning and it's the right temperature and i get a whiff of some smell if i'm in north carolina or something and if i like just close my eyes for a second and try to like capture it and savor it i i like being able to just hold on to those moments of nostalgia you know it could be like them doing a controlled burn in the woods yeah. and you get that whiff and you're like oh i yeah I'm 20 years old and I'm land napping right now, you know, and just try to hold on to
1: that moment before it gets away. Yeah. For me, it's not like, it's not like I want to relive those days. It's, I didn't realize how it wasn't in, until I started going down to Fort Benning and I've been down there, I don't know, six or eight times in the last like two years. And it hit me the first time I was down there. Exactly what you're saying. It's like, there's only one place that smells like this and has the humidity level of this. And yeah. All the plants and things that you, you smell and all of that. And so I started thinking about it and I'm like, man, it all ties back to the music. So like this was the soundtrack. So I think what I've done is kind of like effectively capture that essence. But instead of doing it with a smell that takes me back, it's, I've done it with music. And it's so it's all very much of that vein of that kind of genre, except it sounds really modern. So when's the new one due out? Um, yeah. So we'll record most of June and part of July and that should finish up probably mid August. And then it takes a little while to kind of like get everything filtered up and uploaded and everything else. And like, I'm thinking it'll be late August or early September. And we may try and pick a date like September 11th to release it on or something that's, you know, more memorable than just picking an arbitrary date. Plus that'll probably time with like, if we've got uh some big articles or press or things like that that we're doing, and we'll probably want to time it with that also. So
0: twenty year anniversary too. Yeah, that's big crazy. This year yeah. we did ours on Memorial Day, and we were just kind of like we can hit this deadline, and it means something. Let's do that. But yeah, yeah, twenty years, man, it's
1: almost unbelievable. Yeah, it doesn't even seem real. <laughs> <laughs> in what? some ways, it feels like forty, and in some ways, it feels like three. I'm also at the point where I don't know if you get this. I think it comes with getting older, but I have this tendency to go like, "Yeah, it's like three years ago, and we were doing X," and it's like, "Oh wait, no, that was nine years ago." (laughs) But my brain is like, "No, that was only three years ago." Everything is like, "Oh, 2007? Yeah, that was like three years ago." Was having with our our mutual friend was having that conversation about something this morning via text. And he was yeah. like, was that 2011? I was like, dude, holy crap. That was 2011. I
0: heard you talk on another podcast about how you drew some of your musical inspiration about like rock coming out of the 60s and Vietnam and that kind of stuff. But you were also interested in the military, do that kind of stuff. If I'm off base, let me know. But uh, I wanted to just throw a couple by you. So songs about war. I wrote down some. You know, remind the group that I'm the lay consumer of music. So, all right. War, what's it good for? Versus Fortunate Son. Oh, Fortunate Son. Yeah?
1: Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. War Pigs versus Run to the Hills. Mm, I think it would have to go War Pigs, even though I think War Pigs, I mean, I will always pick Sabbath over pretty much every other band. Yeah. I think I think yeah, I gotta go War Pigs on that. Okay, and then last one, one by
0: Metallica versus Rooster versus All Along the Watchtower.
1: Oh, 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 oh. Ooh, a three way, <laughs> huh? Okay, I I would go Rooster. Oh yeah, yeah. I think I think that that has to me it has the most depth. Really. Uh, and then I think number two would be All Along the Watchtower, and I think the last one would be one.
0: Really of the personal aspect of it
1: because rooster is
0: about the guy's dad right yeah Yeah. but i
1: i think rooster the thing i I liked about it to me is that it doesn't just talk about like i'm dropping bombs and you know yeah here comes close air support raining brass you know yeah it's it's talking about some of the more i don't know in a in a in a visceral way like it's it's talking about war and aftermath and struggle and all of that. It's not like glorifying something. I think it's funny to see bands that think they're badasses because they play like metal, you know? And Slayer, Slayer would be a great example of that. Like they're, they're, uh, their main guitar player is all, you know, he's a badass because he wears real chains on stage. And like, dude, you play music. Like, enjoy that you play music. Don't try and be a tough guy.
0: <laughs> you know? so it's all in the circles that you run with it's kind of yeah. like skydivers or rock climbers yeah so i
1: would put another one on that list yeah i was going to ask you what did i miss or what's your top i always think of and i'm not a i'm not a stones fan by any means but i always think of gimme shelter hmm. as like i don't know it's just a very like maybe it's a time that it came out but i think i think of that as being a i don't know a war song it's probably a probably an anti-war song as much as anything else but
0: well like born in the usa right yeah it's like we're all pumping our fists flying overseas to a song telling us that (laughs) war doesn't make any sense (laughs) yeah i thought you'd go rooster because of the uh you just got finished talking about grunge man and that was right in there right
1: yeah that definitely is that's definitely one of them that that's probably the band that at the time i connected with the most just because they were aggressive and they had a sound uh them and nirvana both i i super connected with them and then that kind of led me to Soundgarden and them not as much but it's more about to me like that was the last real rock scene like there's been nothing like that since mm. rap pop yeah there's you know huge movements in that but The last real rock scene was grunge. There's been nothing like it since. There have been offshoots of stuff. So, like, metal kind of merged with rap. And that started things, you know, like, corn. And there have been, like, Scandinavian death metal and things like that that didn't exist. But those aren't huge movements. Not, not Not like grunge was. And so it's interesting to see nowadays, like, what the kids like, except... I found like my son is a perfect example my younger son is a perfect example of this like grunge is their classic rock. So he's all about Red Hot Chili Peppers and Soundgarden and Nirvana and all yeah. that stuff. It's huge. It's like the way that I would be about like Boston. Yeah. Or yeah. same way I was with, you know, except Rush was still like current but all that stuff, you know, Rush, Boston, Deep Purple yeah sabbath all that all that shit for
0: me you know we got to get you the uh the show question before we let you go but we ask everybody who are you today if you never served
1: man is it supposed to be a short answer it varies (laughs) you're like yes please make it short no fuck Um, we're willing to uh, yeah
0: we've gone over two hours uh, that's post edit so we have not time bound
1: okay um I kind of feel like music wasn't my thing and it wasn't supposed to happen when I was younger because I couldn't have handled it. I was an immature idiot that would have drank it all away or drugged it all away or fucked it all away or done whatever. And I don't think I had any depth. I think I was a good kid. You know, I was wild, no doubt. Um, But I don't, I don't think that I could have handled it. And I don't think, I don't think any of it then had any meaning. It was what I wanted to do from the time I was like, my earliest memories are music and my parents taking me to concerts and making up my own songs, wherever. I mean, it's just always been a big thing for me. So I feel like life presented me with something and I made a choice and that was kind of like me, I don't know, gaining depth, gaining something bigger than myself to represent I feel like people that are truly writing from their soul have a depth that I didn't have at 19. And when you think about bands like Van Halen, not that they're a deep emotional band, but I think about you know a group of 21-year-olds that were owning stadiums. I mean, owning it. You know, So you either had people like that or you had people that were tortured, like Kurt Cobain, who probably didn't have a happy day in his life because of his childhood, because of whatever and who knows what was going on with mental illness or any of that kind of stuff so I think it was a way for me to gain depth and character in a way that then I could maybe go tell stories and do something with it later so who am I today man I don't I don't know because I think if I had been that guy I don't think I'd have lived through it you know I probably would have drank myself to death or drugged myself to death so thank you, Army. Now, you saved my life. Now you get <laughs>
0: <laughs> well. Now you get the discount rate publicist because they don't think you're going to do that. Yeah, not yeah. discount rate, but you
1: know, yeah. you don't get billed as many publicist hours. Now you get free Applebee's on uh, Veterans Day. <laughs> <laughs> Golden Corral. Uh, awesome. Thanks for having me. I think it's cool that you're doing what you're doing. I mean, this is all in a way, right? It's all. It's all for the same purpose, you know? It's for the same reasons, and it's not about yeah. self-notoriety or anything else. It's about doing the right thing and trying to, trying to help out where you can and trying to show people. And I, everybody that I do a podcast with, I think it's pretty awesome because it's a platform that didn't exist 10 years ago in popular, not the way that it is now. Yeah. Um, but that's all I do, man. I'm in my car rarely am I listening to music. I'm listening to like audiobooks and podcasts and stuff like that. Yeah. All about true crime, which is a whole other true crime. podcast. Oh yeah. It's like its own friggin' <laughs> yeah. genre. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we believe in the medium
0: too. So we would rather just tell real people's stories than try to be prescriptive because I'm for sure not the authority on any of that. Yeah. But we can tell
1: you about how people feel about their own lives. Yeah. And yeah. that if you relate to them, cool yeah one of the things that i noticed and just doing what i'm doing with the music thing is that the first responder community it's as big of a part of all of this they struggle with the very same things that military community people do you know yeah. and i feel like they get kind of like treated like the redheaded stepchild you know it's like veterans 22 a day blah 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 but and and by first responder i don't mean just police officers and firemen but they're like EMTs and they're trauma nurses and they're yeah they're are people that do amazing things and uh that's something that i i try and relate everything back to that like anybody that's had some sort of difficulty to overcome can relate to what you're doing it doesn't just have to be veteran community right obviously transition is a different thing you know but yeah I listened to Jay Moore podcast. He was a comedian on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And I listened to a podcast by him because a buddy recommended it. And it was Justine Bateman who was on Family Ties. I thought it was like Michael J. Fox and the whole family. And uh, it was a great uh, sitcom. And it was a part of like, you know, NBC's Thursday night, like hit it out of the park, you know, hit shows. Anyway... She talked about, on this podcast, she talked about her fall from fame and she wrote a book and it was everything that she was saying was the same thing that veterans deal with. Loss of identity. Like here I was on people's television seven days a week for years. Everybody knew who I was. I was popular. I had money. I had, you know, whatever. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, the show's canceled and we're going to stop syndicating it and you know, it's all over. And, yeah. uh, she's been typecast, you know, as like, well, she's Mallory from family ties. So she couldn't really do a whole lot of other stuff. But anyway, it was interesting. Listening to that inspired me to, to contact the guy. And I sent every podcast. He says, you know, Hey, if you got ideas for show or do whatever, hit me at, you know, Jay Moore whatever his email is. And so I hit him up direct and I was like, yo dude, this is who I am. I'd love to be on your show. And I was in Vegas and, uh, he called me like out of the blue and he's like, Hey, what's up, man? This is Jay. You know, you, you send me an email and you want to get on and talk about this thing. Like, let's do it. And, uh, like, damn. Okay. That's so, awesome. yeah, I mean, you just with anything, I think you gotta just go for it. Get out
0: there. Yeah. I saw Joe Rogan sitting across at another table in Vegas at a steakhouse. And I resisted the urge to say I have a podcast, too, because it's really not the same thing. <laughs> hey. We're, uh... Yeah, we're, uh... You, me? Same, yeah. same? Yeah? yeah? Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You, Now What? A podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Brad shredding it up in a city near you. For more... Follow him at Brad Thomas official or at silence and light official, all with underscores on Instagram. You can also head back to silence and light to check out them as well as the organizations they support. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on thank you. Now what?